Hello, welcome to the Science for Policy podcast. My name's Toby, and today I'm joined by Professor Barbara Viss. Professor Viss is based at the School of Governance in Utrecht University in the Netherlands, where she is Professor of Politics and Governance, and she directs the Master's Programme Research in Public Administration and Organisational Science. Her own interests include how politicians make decisions, and especially how they make judgments using heuristics. She's director of the project uh, Radiance, or Radiance, not sure how to pronounce that, which is funded by the European Research Council and examines how politicians respond to different kinds of uncertainty. So, Barbara, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, uh, thanks, Toby. Uh, great uh, to be here. Radiance? Yeah, it's it's an acronym. I would pronounce it Radiance myself, but it's it's not a real world. So uh, there's, uh, there's some leeway in uh, how to pronounce it. Yeah, I think this is a major downside of the huge expansion of EU research funding, which frankly is not discussed often enough. The fact that the more projects we have, the fewer acronyms are left that haven't been used before, so they get increasingly forced and weird. Anyway, that's not our topic for the day. Our topic is how politicians reason and make decisions. And this sounds like a fun area of research, like this intersection between psychology and politics and political science. I want to start by asking... Why do you focus on politicians specifically? I mean, apart from the fact that you're a professor of politics, do you think that politicians make judgments differently from quote unquote ordinary people? That, that is indeed a an interesting question to which we increasingly uh, uh, know the answer. And uh, in a nutshell, the answer is that politicians uh, are not that different from the rest of us. Uh, so then maybe as a follow-up question, okay, but then uh, why bother studying them uh, specifically? Because what we see is that in, in many respects, politicians are like uh, the rest of us in the sense that and they also uh, display all kinds of decision-making biases and in that sense are not better uh, than the rest of us as making uh, decisions. But there are also some key differences. And these, for instance, relate to the context in which they make decisions. And of course, uh, very importantly, uh, the effect uh, of their decisions. So uh, when, for instance, uh, you would buy a house yourself or a new car, then uh, maybe uh, your partner or kids uh, might be affected by that decision. But for politicians, of course, uh, the effects are much larger. So uh, that is uh, why I think it's particularly interesting to figure out much more precisely uh, how they make decisions, uh, what the effects thereof are, and even maybe small differences across politicians and uh, and the rest of us can have a big effect uh, later on. So it's not the other way around. It's not that politicians are kind of a readily available group of people that you can study in order to draw more general conclusions. It's that they're interesting for special reasons themselves. Yes, I think so. Yeah. And and one of the things that has struck me over the years is that the question of whether it's it's interesting in and of itself uh, to study politicians it depends very much uh, who you talk to. So, for instance, psychologists uh, generally think it's very weird to study a group specifically because, well, politicians are humans, so you expect that they behave as humans. So from that perspective, it makes little sense to study them uh, sort of as a separate group. Whereas for political scientists, they oftentimes see politicians as sort of a special breed. So for them, it would be very weird not to study them. Uh, and I think where this, this intersection of, uh, of, of what are the similarities, what are the, what are the differences uh, is a very exciting one. Mm. And we're talking specifically about politicians and not 
like policy makers in general. So not civil servants who sit in offices figuring out policy, but the politicians who lead on it and decide on it. Yeah, my, my research indeed uh, focuses on politicians. So these can be, uh, for instance, uh, um, well, range from uh, members of parliament, but also local politicians. So uh, those you would pre oftentimes not call sort of uh, the top level politicians who work uh, at, say, a municipal or a county level. But it can also be party leaders or, or ministers. And of course, uh, to some extent, their decisions are not made in a vacuum, but are influenced by the people uh, around them. So they're influenced by uh, their advisors, uh, by policymakers. So uh, from that perspective, you could say that indirectly that, that does influence uh, the topic on which I do research, uh, but I don't study um, uh, the, the policymakers as a separate group. Good. So that gets out of the way my preliminary questions. Let's jump into the topic. You research heuristics. First and foremost, what is a heuristic? Well, there, there are different definitions uh, that go around, uh, so that, 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 doesn't, that doesn't help. But you could say that, had it stated very briefly, a heuristic is a, a decision-making shortcut. So a lot of the things about which people in general uh, need to make judgments about, so assessments of situations or decisions, are very complicated. So in order sort of to make life easier, people use heuristics, these shortcuts, in order to facilitate this process of judgments uh, and decision-making. Uh, and very often uh, uh, this is uh, sensible uh, because it, uh, for instance, reduces the time that you need to make a decision. And when decisions are not that important, uh, this is also a very, uh, very effective way that oftentimes lead to, to very fine outcomes. Uh, but it can also lead to decision making biases. And that is why particularly uh, in the context of politicians using these heuristics, the effects uh, can be uh, quite uh, substantial and uh, possibly also negative. Okay, so this is a general phenomenon. It's not just in the province of policymaking. Can you give an example or two? Yes, an example in general um, of a heuristic would be um, that if you, for instance, have to assess uh, if someone is a good leader, which is a difficult question. Uh, and what you then do is you look at how does someone look? So do they, for instance, have a uh, how is their appearance? Huh? Is, is someone, for instance, tall? How is, uh, do they have a, a strong chin? And then you think, okay, huh, they look like a, a good leader, so they probably are a good leader. Okay, so this sounds like a deeply unhelpful, I mean, a heuristic for which there's no evidence of any real-life connection between what you use as input and the decision you're trying to make. This is surely a bad heuristic, right? I mean, if you get a good result out of it, it'll only be by chance. Exactly. So this this is indeed an example where hey, you use a stereotype idea of a leader in order to make uh, a judgment, which oftentimes uh, will be wrong. I mean, uh, someone who is tall and has a forceful chin can, of course, be a good leader, but not necessarily so. Uh, an example of a uh, heuristic uh, that would be productive is if someone who, for instance, is very uh, experienced uh, in a, a particular domain, and, and that can indeed be someone in politics, but it can also be, for instance, say, a chess player who uh, immediately uh, does 
just the first thing that comes to mind. So you don't figure out all the steps that need to be taken on the chessboard, but you immediately see, oh, I have to move this pawn to that particular position. And that is uh, what I need to do. So a sort that that is uh, called uh, the take the first uh, heuristic. So you just do the first thing that comes to mind. And if you have a lot of experience in a particular domain, that can be a, a very good strategy. Hmm. So is the idea that the person is just taking a shortcut and not considering all the factors that they might otherwise consider? Or is it more that uh, because of their experience, mm-hmm. they've as it were, got some pre-programming so they can do the processing of these factors subconsciously? I mean, the chess player might say, oh, I don't know, I didn't think too hard. It just looked like the right thing to do, so I did it. Mm-hmm. But then maybe through a process of psychoanalysis or careful study where you manipulate variables or whatever, you could figure out that they were actually sensitive to all these different factors. They just weren't conscious of being sensitive to it because of their experience. I don't know. Now I say that out loud, I don't know if what I'm asking is really actually getting at a difference. Help me out here. Yeah, that's 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 an interesting question. It's also a, a question that is that is relatively hard to answer. I think in general, you could say that the idea is that when people use a heuristic, uh, then they base their judgment or their decision on incomplete information or biased information. So it can be that, for instance, uh, in the example of the chess player, but uh, firefighters would be another example, uh, that uh, if you have a lot of uh, experience in a particular domain, then in a, in a blink of an eye, you pick the thing that actually, if you would have considered all the options, uh, then you would have also made uh, that decision. So it may look like this is a, a rational decision that uh, that was really taken by weighing all the pros and cons and taking uh, what is really rationally speaking uh, the best option. But you're able to do that because you have so much uh, experience uh, and expertise available that you can immediately draw on. So in that sense, you say that it is uh, still, well, a largely unconscious decision that is taken. So it doesn't take a lot of processing power, but you're able to do that because you have done a lot of processing uh, in the past. And so very often you could say, or or it makes sense to say that you can make a distinction between uh, if you do a heuristic is being used, then uh, the, the processing, uh, uh, the information processing power is relatively uh, limited. Whereas if you try to make a comprehensive uh, decision, indeed weighing all the pros and cons, etc., cetera, uh, it takes much more uh, processing power. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, processing is expensive in terms of time, and also sometimes in terms of information, right? The chess player is a good example of time, but they do at least have all the information in theory on the chessboard in front of them. Mm-hmm. But if we think about your firefighter example, this is a different one, because suppose they're standing outside the burning building trying to decide if it's safe to go in. The information they need is, is things, I guess, like the structural state of the building, what areas have been damaged by the fire, the temperature inside the amount of smoke and that kind of thing. And they just don't have access to that information from outside at all. Yeah. So they have to make up their mind based on what we might call gut feeling or instinct or what what, what we're calling here heuristics, i.e. judging by the very limited information they have available to them at the moment. Yes, yes. And I think what it, what is particularly uh, interesting also for politicians is that uh, on the one hand, they indeed oftentimes lack information. So and not all information is available, as you just mentioned. But 
in other areas, they can also experience uh, information overload. So on the one hand, um, had they, had they, they might not know enough, but on the other hand, they might have too much to attend to, which again uh, makes it makes it necessary to to have some kind of decision rule to decide okay what information do i actually consider and and what do i not uh, consider so there has been a study uh, among uh, belgian politicians that uh, revealed that about 75% of belgian politicians uh, felt overwhelmed by information uh, on a daily basis which of course mean that you have to uh, that you have to figure out some way to, well, survive, if you want to use that term, uh, in such a context. Yeah, I mean, that comes up a lot, doesn't it, when you talk about science advice for policy. People do frequently bring up the overload of information. And a big area of study and also experience for science advisors is finding strategies that can help the relevant information to still be brought out and taken into account rather than just being shoved to one side because there's so much of it. Do you have any examples, like favorite examples of yours, where you can say heuristics were definitely used for that kind of purpose? Yeah, well, well, maybe uh, starting with, with a quite old example, going back to the 19th century even, uh, which I think is a, is a quite nice example. What we have seen in the mid of the 19th century, starting um, uh, the removal of the French king in 1848, that a whole spread of protest of democratic uh, contention uh, spread across Europe which seems to be uh, a result of really the availability of a very vivid event, namely the king had been removed, sort of signaling to people, okay, this is possible, this is something that we can do, and that all of a sudden put this idea of, well, of revolutions elsewhere and protests to that effect uh, uh, on the agenda. And for policymakers and for politicians, that also made that all of a sudden had this option seem to be a, a real option. And here you see that the availability uh, of an event have sort of put something on the agenda that uh, before that uh, was not on the agenda and then sets into motion process of change. So I think here uh, you see an example of the availability heuristic where sort of the, the fact that there is such a vivid event can uh, can trigger change. And in this case, uh, I would say that, uh, that in many countries uh, this, this worked out okay in the sense had that uh, had that this was also uh, an example uh, that could be illustrative uh, for other uh, countries. But what is also quite interesting that at the same time, there were also a much less successful uh, protests taking place, for instance, in Italy, that were not so much on the radar. And if, if, if they, those had been uh, considered, then maybe different choices uh, had been made. So I think that is an interesting example where you see that uh, that a heuristic sort of makes that something gets uh, on the agenda, whereas other uh, things that might be, well, uh, have from a rational perspective, uh, more logical to consider, uh, were not. Uh, a bit more, uh, more recent, there's research that shows that when you look at uh, how political parties uh, change their positions, so uh, their stance on particular topics and changes in that, uh, that they look at what's parties that are in other countries, in neighboring countries, uh, in government are doing and sort of mimic that behavior in the sense that, okay, these parties have made it uh, into office. So apparently they're doing something well. So had that is available um, behavior, if you will. And that is then uh, copied with the idea of, okay, um, if I copy that behavior, then I might uh, also be uh, successful. 
Which is not crazy. I mean, it's not just purely irrational. In general, if you have evidence of something happening recently and in a context that might be somehow similar to yours, mm-hmm. it seems rational to then update your estimates of probability that it might work in your context too. And that then might tip you over the balance into taking an action that you might not have taken otherwise. I mean, that's not crazy, even if it can be prone to error. Yes, it's it's definitely uh, oftentimes uh, not crazy, but it is uh, important here uh, to consider that when you use these kind of available phenomena to stick with the with the availability uh, heuristic, you sort of ignore everything that is not available to you. So, for instance, um, uh, entrepreneurs think, "Okay, I want to start a business. Is this going to be a success?" Well, this is heavily overestimated and starting entrepreneurs generally think that their business is going to be a success. And that is maybe partly a personality trait that could be, I don't know, but I think that to a large extent, this can also be explained that uh, what is available to them are starting entrepreneurs that are successful because those are the ones that you see in the media, on social media, etc. And the tons of people who have started a business that failed, which are many, many more than those that have been successful, you don't see them. So uh, the um, uh, you have a completely uh, biased idea of of success and of course it's in in one way logical uh, to to look at what is there but then you should also consider okay but what is actually at the base rate here and uh, and am i not missing something by looking at these uh, cases of success to stick for instance with the political parties uh, one thing um, in in systems with coalition governments not all parties that enter office have actually done so well at the next election so there might be uh, uh, some uh, effect there that you don't take into consideration and it can very well be that there are also parties who have taken similar positions uh, but didn't make it into office uh, that you don't take into consideration so uh, by focusing so much on what you see and not on what you don't see, you run the risk of drawing uh, uh, false conclusions. Uh, they, they can be um, not so bad, but it can also be that they have really uh, severe consequences. So from the point of view of your research, then, I wonder, because as you, what you get as your primary data is decisions being made. And then you, as the researcher, I guess you look at those decisions and think, I wonder if a heuristic was being used there. And if it was, then you're off to the races. But then how do you figure it out? You know, if you're talking about, for instance, a, a party deciding whether to go into coalition or not, and maybe they discuss it and they decide to stay out of coalition because they've noticed that parties that go into coalition often get thrashed at the next election. Well, I mean, maybe they're using a misguided heuristic there. Like you say, they're failing to notice the occasions when parties have gone into coalition and then done well. So they're falling prey to a fallacy. But maybe it was also a carefully reasoned decision where they made their call based on examining lots of evidence and considering all the factors and rationally weighing it up and so on. And I guess at the end, people don't tend to say, oh, well, I use a heuristic. Right? <laughs> I just looked around at other parties in Europe and it seemed like a good idea. So we went for it. They tend to rationalize after the event anyway. So how can you establish whether a heuristic really was involved? 
Yeah, that uh, establishing that heuristic has been used is indeed extremely challenging. So um, uh, the literature uh, on well on decision making in general has suggests uh, that that heuristics are often used, but indeed, uh, and and I think that the examples that you just just gave are are good examples that also illustrate that actually establishing that heuristic has been used is is extremely uh, difficult. So in the past, um, there have been a couple of ways in in which uh, researchers have tried to establish this. So, for instance, the study that I mentioned about the waves of uh, of revolutions in nineteenth uh, century uh, Europe, um, that is based on qualitative research, where uh, the researcher uh, Kurt Weiland has studied. Uh, for instance, diaries of people at the time uh, looked at all kinds of transcripts and other material to try to figure out if, for instance, uh, people were saying things like, okay, uh, we can do that too, which then would sort of signal that they took what is happening elsewhere and indeed use that uh, to make their own uh, decision and judgment. And at the same time, it would also mean, indeed, that you would have to establish that they they did it like this and that they didn't, indeed, carefully weigh uh, all the options and, and, and go through that procedure. So you also have to rule out that that happens. And that is challenging, indeed. So in this case, that has been done by, indeed, going through all and that, uh, that archival material, these diaries, to, to try and find out what are people saying about the judgments uh, that they made uh, at the time. And does that support more, had this notion of, of a heuristic style of processing, or does it has support more uh, a rational type of approach? And then the evidence clearly pointed um, uh, in the heuristic uh, side. Okay, that makes sense. Uh, then I, I'd also like to ask, in that kind of case, do you have ways to tell whether someone is using a heuristic, you know, actually using it versus deploying it rhetorically as part of an attempt to persuade others? In other words, you know, maybe consciously taking advantage of that heuristic in others. So for instance, if these diaries and letters are full of people saying, look, they killed their king in France, we can do it too. How do you know if they're like describing their own reasoning process or if they are instead using that line of argument to try and persuade others or to rule out a particular doubt that others might have or whatever? Uh, yes, very interesting question. Actually, in this um, uh, in, the, in the Radiance project, um, one of the responses that we will be looking for uh, is called uh, exploitative. And that means that you use uh, the uncertain phenomena to your own advantage. And the way I'm thinking about it now is that uh, this particular response can be combined with other responses. So you can indeed use a heuristic to benefit yourself. And, and so in that sense, uh, they can strengthen each other. And, and well, we would have to look empirically what we see happening. But indeed, uh, the use of such a phrase can also be done, uh, well, to, to make sure that uh, you either can gain credit for what you have done or maybe avoid, uh, avoid the blame. Um, and one way to figure out that it has indeed be a heuristic and not, say, a comprehensive, uh, a more rational approach is to look at what sort of other options were or were not uh, considered. And, and then you know if it has been, say, a comprehensive approach combined with uh, an exploitative um, response, if you will, or whether it has been uh, heuristics with exploitative. But I completely agree that that disentangling this empirically will be uh, will be very challenging. And are there ways to disentangle it empirically? 
What I have done uh, myself with, with a co-author in, in a relatively uh, a recent study is that we uh, tried to do this in a, a controlled setting uh, using a survey experiment uh, with politicians as participants, local politicians in the Netherlands uh, were the participants. And what we tried to do is we took the, the designs of original experiments that allowed us to identify the biases that were related to the use of a heuristic. So indeed, identifying a heuristic in and of itself is very difficult, even in an experimental uh, setting. But what we do know is what kind of biases you would expect from the use of a uh, particular um, heuristic. So, for instance, in the case of representativeness, and when you, for instance, uh, think, okay, eh, this is a good politician uh, because they look like a good politician, that a bias that we know that is related to that is scope neglect. So that you neglect eh, the entire size uh, of the phenomenon uh, uh, that is there. And that is something, eh, this scope neglect that you can uh, uh, test uh, in an experimental setting. So what we what we did is we had in uh, this survey experiment, we had a vignette, so short text that allowed us to see to what extent uh, the respondents, the politicians who participated in the study, to what extent they indeed uh, neglected scope. And if they did, then our conclusion uh, was uh, that this is an indication that they have used uh, the representativeness heuristic. And so it's still not direct evidence because indeed that's that's very hard to come by, but it is indirect evidence via the bias that is related to this heuristic. And indeed, uh, we found that uh, politicians uh, did tend to neglect the scope of a problem, even though they said when asked about it, uh, that they thought it was important uh, to take the scope of the problem into account. So in this particular case, uh, we asked about how much budget they were willing to spend uh, on dealing with uh, people who would make uh, a nuisance uh, in their municipality. And we gave them, we gave different groups two numbers, uh, 24 nuisance makers and uh, 53. And they indicated that indeed, they would want to spend more money on a group of 53 of nuisance makers than on a group of, of 20, uh, 23. But that was not what we found in the results. So they, they did thought that these were, say, qualitatively uh, different sizes, but they actually uh, attributed the same amount of funds uh, to deal with this problem in their municipality. And so for us, this was a signal uh, of the use of the representativeness heuristic. Yeah, so I find this really interesting. So you ask people in the abstract, do you think it's important to take into account the scope? And of course they say, yes, yes, it is. We should spend less money. The problem is smaller. And then when you test those same people on an example where they're supposed to do that, you see the biases despite it. So their behavior contradicts their assertion about what they ought to do. Yes. Yes, we, we, we did ask it the other way around. So we gave them first... And the decision problem where they had to uh, decide how much money to allocate uh, to deal with a, a particular problem. And so the, this problem was then indeed uh, uh, described as uh, as people who make uh, a nuisance in their municipality. And then later uh, we asked about whether they thought this, this difference was important. So there are different ways you could be wrong about what you do. <laughs> so so one way is what you've just been describing. You could behave in a way that shows you're out of step, as it were, with your own rational principles. But another way is that you might misinterpret your own past behavior and kind of rationalize after the event. So if you made a decision 
And it turned out great. You can say, you know, hooray for me. Look how rational a decision maker I am. Look at me taking into account all the variables. Go me. Yes. And if it turned out badly, you could equally say, well, well, I tried. I did my best, but I had limited information, hard luck. But either way, you're kind of blind then to your own heuristic use, if indeed that's what it was. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. We've already covered this ground. Maybe I'm just bringing up more difficulties. And I do appreciate the techniques you just described that help to deal with these problems. But I'm, I'm just not sure that you're going to rule them out completely. You're never going to, as it were, clinch it and say, aha, this is a classic example of heuristic use. Yeah, yeah. No, I I completely agree. But but in my view, that is also what makes it so fascinating. So uh, maybe to to give another example of a of a study um, uh, that I conducted with a with a co-author, where we looked at some cases um, uh, from the UK, where with hindsight you could say that. Uh, the decision makers uh, in place misjudged uh, how voters would respond. We used uh, interview material that was uh, actually collected uh, for a somewhat different purpose, but we thought, okay, it would also be very interesting to look at these um, at these interview transcripts to see to what extent there are also heuristics uh, identifiable in them that might also help explain. Uh, why these policymakers, and these were both uh, politicians, but also some high-level uh, advisors, why they misjudged public opinion, even though uh, these were salient cases about which you would expect that it was very important to get public opinion right, because if you wouldn't, then it was almost certain uh, uh, already upfront that this would backfire. And there we looked uh, in these these transcripts to see to what extent we could identify uh, these heuristics. And here we could indeed see that, uh, that for instance, uh, one of the cases that we we looked at was the the tuition fee case, which was uh, a decision by the Liberal Democrats uh, initially uh, had, well, had campaigned on have we want to abolish tuition fees altogether and then entering a coalition, they actually agreed to not only increase tuition fees, but increase it uh, uh, very drastically. And when talking to people who had been involved in that decision, one of the things that came out of those interviews was that they had uh, expected that they would get away with it because a previous uh, U-turn uh, on a similar topic, uh, the people involved there had also gotten away with that. So they thought, okay, uh, this has been done before, it worked out then, so we expect it uh, to work out now. And uh, we say uh, this is uh, an example where you see that a heuristic has been used. Uh, and well, let me uh, uh, also note here that politicians or other decision makers, I mean, they don't say themselves that they use a heuristic. It's, uh, it's, it's what you see from, uh, from what is available. But that uh, in, in our reading um, is at least one of the factors that helps explain why this misjudgment could be made because uh, of this heuristic. So uh, in in this particular study, we don't say that uh, heuristics explain everything and particularly not uh, when it comes to making misjudgments, but they can actually contribute to a better understanding of why such wrong assessments uh, are being made. Hmm. This makes it sound kind of inevitable. I mean, people are people. We have brains designed the way they're designed and, and politicians operate, as we've said, under high time pressure, with uncertainty, with either not enough evidence or too much evidence overload. 
and they have to make the decisions they have to make. So in a way, kind of hard luck. So is it hopeless? Do we have to resign ourselves to the fact that heuristics are going to be used and mm -hmm. sometimes they'll mess things up for us? Or are there ways to try and correct for it? Well, I, I wouldn't say that we're that we're hopeless. Um, I think uh, one one area where there's uh, where there's also an increasing amount of research is being done is is the area of so-called debiasing. So the idea that uh, decision-making biases uh, that there might be ways in order to uh, to reduce them, and some of the biases are indeed related to the use of uh, of heuristics. And one of the, the, the first uh, things that is always mentioned is that uh, the acknowledgement that biases exist is sort of a first step towards uh, well, countering them. So, for instance, uh, the example that I gave in the, in the beginning with the, with the person who looks like a good leader, but we have absolutely no idea whether this person is a good leader, being aware of such stereotypical influences can help you to take a step back and think, okay, what am I actually uh, judging here? Is Does this make any sense? What am I uh, ignoring? So uh, taking a step uh, back uh, and maybe also um, uh, placing yourself in the position of the persons who will be affected by a particular decision. And those are sort of very, we say, low-key strategies that can counter this kind of behavior. Uh, it does mean that you would have to sort of step out of the mode of, of swift judgment and, and indeed uh, take a bit more time uh, to reflect. Uh, but particularly when, uh, when decisions are important, uh, it is uh, relevant uh, to do that and to think, okay, uh, am I making a, a stereotypical based judgment here? And, and if so, uh, how can that be countered? And then let me ask you specifically about science advisors, about people whose role it is to try and bring evidence into policymaking. If a science advisor understands what you've been talking about, about the role of heuristics, how can they respond to this? What implications might it have about how they do their job? Uh, one of the things that is important is to, is to be aware that how you communicate, what you communicate, that that indeed matters. And it's, it's also good that if advice is being, uh, science advice is being given, that it's clear, okay, where, where does this draw from? What are sort of the foundations uh, of the knowledge uh, that is communicated? And is this simply uh, something uh, that is salient, that is now uh, all over the news and that therefore uh, is, is taken uh, in, into an advice? Uh, or is there a, uh, I would say, more solid foundation for it, uh, which means that it's it's much easier to immediately take it on. I'm not sure whether next piece of advice is really for, for science uh, advisors uh, specifically, but, but one of the things that struck us in the study that I just mentioned about judgments that um, policymakers uh, made about uh, electoral uh, responses, one of the things that we found out there, which we thought was super intriguing, is that Policymakers tended to assume uh, that voters would respond rationally to whatever policies they would implement. So policymakers tended to ignore the fact that, uh, well, that, that people are not uh, rational. Uh, so I think that is also a broader phenomenon. I think that can also be important to take into consideration when giving science advice that Kahneman some, uh, one time said, okay, uh, you are biased, but so am I. So it's important to take these biases in consideration 
on all accounts. Uh, it's, it's one step to do something about your own biases, but if you then subsequently assume that people respond rationally, then um, uh, it won't work. So the idea is that politicians and, and their advisors and stuff overlook the effect of heuristics in others. And so they assume that the public or whoever will respond rationally. Yes. So how does that fit with the opposite view you often hear, that politicians tend to assume people won't respond rationally and so they feel the need to use rhetorical tricks and hide information and so on, exactly because they're worried about a response from voters which they would judge to be irrational? Yes. You know, even when a politician is presenting kind of a hard science-based topic, the advice you often hear for them is you need to find a way to explain it to the voters so that they get it. The implication being, okay, yes, we know our foundations of reasoning are solid, but people aren't so rational and they won't respond the way we think they should. Are you saying the opposite of that? I'm not sure, but I think that these two things can can coexist. So I think what one of the, the things that struck us, that what we found uh, in, um, uh, in, in some of these interviews, that indeed the idea was that, that if you have a good policy, then, you know, people will accept it. So they, they will see that it is a good policy. Others will accept it for, uh, for it being a good policy. So in that sense, I think it complements the view that uh, even if you have good policy, you need to figure out ways to uh, to sort of sell it uh, to the public because they might not see it. And what we here saw that people, and I think that in itself can also be a bias, that if you're so convinced that what you're proposing uh, is good for uh, your constituencies, then uh, it, it might be very hard for you to not see uh, that they might not see it because they look at completely different aspects of the policy, uh, for instance, or because uh, your uh, the, the opposition uh, raises a, a different angle or indeed because of framing. So uh, it can also be a bias that you're so convinced of whatever you're proposing that you're sort of ignore that uh, that there is also a whole recipient's uh, side uh, uh, to the policy uh, that might not view it from your perspective. So I think these these two things can can coexist, actually. Okay, great. You also said something about salience, that like if something is all over the news, people will take it more seriously, which of course we do see uh, also in political context. Mm-hmm. I'm just thinking out loud here. I don't know if there'll even be a question at the end of this, but when you mentioned that, it triggered a thought about one issue that's perennial in science for policy circles, this question about whether science advice should be on demand, i.e. it should be driven always by what's on the political agenda or whether it should come more bottom up. And I think the idea of having it on demand and by request, there are strong advantages to that, right? Your advice is guaranteed to be relevant and to have an audience and so on. Whereas if you just kind of throw stuff at policymakers without any reference to what's in the front of their minds, it can be a quite an ineffective way to try and influence policy. But of course, there are arguments the other way as well, which is why I find it so interesting what you just said about salience, that things kind of need to be in the zeitgeist. Does that mean you would suggest when we as a society build our science advice institutions and mechanisms, we should include some way to feed topics in, which is a bit more rational, let's say, to try and counteract the salience effect. So a scientist can say, never mind, minister, what you think is the top priority right now this second, because here's some evidence you should be interested in, even though it doesn't seem salient to you right now. There we are. I did manage a question in the end. 
Yeah, I mean, this this is a very interesting question. I think there's, um, uh, have, for instance, take the, the, the very broad topic of, of climate change. I think there's quite a lot of evidence that, I mean, for for years there have been all kinds of researchers and I assume also all kinds of science advisors who have tried to push that particular aspect relating to climate change uh, to the political agenda. And I think only recently uh, some of these aspects are, are actually on uh, uh, the agenda. So then you see that uh, you can have this hammer, but if, if you're knocking on on something that, that no one is interested in, then, then this is not going to work. Um, so maybe as a sort of a side bet, I think one one model from uh, from public administration, public policy that's very interesting uh, that you may be aware of is the the multiple streams uh, framework uh, by Kingdom. Is, does that ring a bell? No, no. Tell me more. Well, the multiple streams uh, framework assumes that uh, in in the in policy making you have three streams. So you have the political stream. So that is where well where where decisions are being made. You have the um, uh, the problem stream. So that is where where all the the problems are situated, and you have the solutions uh, stream. And only when these three streams come together, something actually happens. And so uh, and you can you have tons of problems that are important to at least uh, some people, but only some of them can actually enter uh, the political agenda uh, because of uh, limited attention and, and budget also. Uh, and then there is this, this solution stream where there are maybe all kinds of solutions, but not always is there a, a problem for it. And so, so these these things need to need to come together. And I think that that science advice can be super effective is if if it's able uh, to indeed tie these things at the right moment. So maybe, but they have to be a little bit close uh, already. So if if say um, uh, there is a problem, but no one cares about it except maybe for the people who really care about the issue. Uh, then you can do all you want, but then it's not going to uh, it, it's it's not going to work out. Or if there is a is a problem that people think is super important, but there is absolutely no possible solution uh, available at the time, uh, then this is also not going to work. So I think um, a recommendation would be is to sort of find a sweet spot where these things can be brought together. So when indeed science, assuming that that science is mostly about offering these solutions, but also to some extent about signaling uh, some problems that may be not on the radar, uh, that, that these things um, uh, can be brought together and then... Um, can hopefully uh, enter the uh, political agenda at some time and uh, and and make a change. Okay, uh, sorry. What was the third stream? You've got the problem stream, the solution stream, and and uh, the the political stream. So that is where uh, where the political agenda and all the political actors uh, are situated. Okay, great. And um, we're coming to the end now, and I do want to just ask you where you think the gaps are in our knowledge uh, of this topic of decision making by politicians. Where are we heading next? Yes, um, the research project that you that you mentioned um, that I've just started uh, working on focuses uh, broader than just on uh, on heuristics. It focuses on how uh, politicians at different levels, so for instance, a national level, local level, uh, in a range of countries, 
uh, how they respond to uncertain phenomena. And indeed, because heuristics are used uh, uh, typically in a context of uh, uncertainty, of complexity, this is one of the possible responses to such uncertain phenomena. And so when I talk, uh, when I speak of uncertain phenomena, this can range from uh, topics like climate change, digitalization, uh, but also, for instance, um, uh, things relating to uh, to the welfare state uh, can come with uh, with uncertainty. Uh, and one of the the parts, one of the components of this project. Uh, is to indeed uh, find out what kind of responses politicians use. And I hope uh, that by doing that, we will also get uh, much more uh, detailed information on when exactly uh, politicians resort to heuristics and when they uh, instead use a comprehensive uh, approach. Um, uh, and the idea is by the, that by the end of this project, in about five years' time, we will know much more about uh, under which conditions heuristics are actually uh, employed, which is, I think, an area that uh, we still know very little about. Okay, and is the aim to have some kind of predictive power? Like, here's a situation in which the evidence shows heuristics might be used. How can we kind of account for that? Yeah, prediction is always a challenge uh, in, in the social sciences, uh, I would say, but but indeed by having a much better overview of, of the past, that is in this project, we will look at a period of about uh, 25 years for countries, lots of uh, lots of uh, politicians at different levels. So that, that does allow us to, to get hopefully uh, uh, a good overview of, uh, of these responses and well, um, if we do see that there are patterns that are relatively stable over time, then uh, you could indeed um, uh, predict uh, carefully, I would say, uh, uh, into the future um, about when you would expect such heuristics uh, also in other situations. Yes, lovely. I think our time is up, but uh, it's been a fascinating conversation. I've really enjoyed talking to you about this topic. So uh, thank you very much indeed, Professor Barbara Viss. Thank you very much for having me. The Science for Policy podcast is created by Sapea. It's produced by me, Toby Wardman, with additional research and support from Agnieszka Pietruchuk. Sapea is a consortium of Europe's academy networks representing more than 100 academies, young academies and learning societies from more than 40 countries across Europe. We're part of the European Commission's scientific advice mechanism and as such we're funded by the European Union. Having said that, the opinions you hear on this podcast are those of the guests and sometimes mine, but certainly not the views of the European Commission. This music is composed by Carlo Alfredo Piatti and performed by Elisaveta Suschenko. And this last bit is particularly good.